Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons of Innovation, the podcast that brings you valuable tips and advice to help you succeed on your innovation journey. In today's episode, I am pleased to welcome David Bland, who for those who do not know him, he is the founder of Precoil, a long-time agile design thinking and lean startup practitioner. David is an innovation advisor for Fortune 500 companies and the co-author of Testing Business Ideas, the book we will be discussing today. David, I'm very excited to have you with me on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. To start with, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how your journey into the world of innovation started? Yeah, my background is actually in um, design. So I went to school for design and communications. And uh, when I came out of school for design, I was like, I'm going to join a startup during the dot-com phase and I'm going to make millions and retire in my mid-20s. And obviously that did not happen. (laughs) But (laughs) I learned learned quite a bit, you know. uh, the company I joined, you know, we thought we were a, a B2C company, business to consumer. We ended up being a B2B company, business to business. Um, and I was there for almost eight years, helping grow inside that startup and, and scale it. And I learned a lot beyond design. I learned, you know, how to uh, interview customers, how to design solutions that aren't quite what they're asking for, but also meets the needs because we had a platform and we had to standardize it across uh, many different banks. And, um, you know, I joined a couple other startups that didn't go so well. And I, I my first experience, right, was a startup where I thought we were very agile and, and nimble and we were willing to pivot. And uh, I thought all startups work that way, you know, because that's the first one I joined. And I learned the hard way that not all startups behave that way. And so after a couple of failures, um, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. And since about 2011, I've been advising companies. I've been advising uh, accelerators, um, but also uh, doing a lot of corporate work on new business development. And so it's been a winding journey, um, but I feel like I found my niche. You know, I, I love helping people uh, think critically about some of their opportunities, reduce their risk, you know, build stuff that matters. So I, I really, really love my work. I liked that you mentioned after a couple of failures, you succeeded at pivoting, something many startups struggle uh, with. I hope we can come back to this later. But for now, I want to ask you, given your expertise in design and in applying some of the many frameworks available to startup and innovators such as Lean Startup, Agile, and Design Thinking, can you maybe define those frameworks for me at a high level and why corporate innovators and entrepreneurs actually use them? Yeah, I, I first I came across Lean Startup by reading Eric Ries's blog. He had a blog called Startup Lessons Learned. And I think I was just experiencing some frustration because I was at different startups. And we worked kind of in an agile way. Um, at least I would say it was very agile. We, we did pair programming. We did test-driven development. We had stand-ups. We did uh, plannings and our retrospectives and our demos and all, and all the stuff. We visualized our work. We did all the the things you would really aspire to do for a really high performing agile uh, organization. And uh, in the end, none of it mattered um, because we just incrementally delivered things that nobody cared about. And so I was very, very frustrated by that experience. And when I, and I think that's how I sought out Alex, Alex Osterwalder's work and Eric Reese's work and Steve Blank's work early on, because I was just looking for, there has to be a better way. Can I take what I'm really great at 
and and can we get more upstream to the customer and start understanding the the needs instead of just delivering things you know iteratively and incrementally. And so in that journey, I, I kind of bought in really early on the lean startup movement. You know, it, it's pretty much scientific method applied to business. And I love that because you could say, what's your hypothesis? Can I design an experiment to go kind of um, support or kind of refute th- this hypothesis? And uh, a lot of those are around the customer and, and the business model, not just about the product. And um, I think where where it aligns really well and complements other methodologies, when you look at design, especially design thinking, you know, a lot of it's about, you know, empathy and understanding the real needs. There's kind of these jobs to be done also you can pull in. And I think with Lean Startup, sometimes people think build, measure, learn, and they say, well, we're just going to build, you know, because it starts with build. But if you really listen to Eric and how he explains it, and he has an Inc. magazine on this topic, uh, this article, where he's like, you have to think about it in reverse. You have to think about what are you trying to learn and then what do you need to measure to learn and then what do you need to build to measure to learn. And I don't think anyone, well, I don't see anyone, but I think a lot of people miss that nuance because it's like, nope, it starts with build, so we're going to (laughs) build. And so I try to use other methodologies to break that building to build mindset and and more like building to learn. And so we have to anchor it in learning. And um, so I think scientific method applied to business plus design thinking, which is a lot of, is this desirable, viable, feasible? Let's have real empathy for the people we're serving. I think they're very, very complementary. So I tend to use a combination of lean startup and design thinking and also agile because agile, I do still think is very valuable. It's just, you have to be very careful that you're not delivering stuff that nobody cares about. To what you've actually just mentioned, uh, about building to learn, uh, why do you think recently there has been an explosion of talking about these uh, methodologies, especially in the corporate world? Yeah, I think um, innovation tends to start at the edges, right? And so if it starts with startups, people look at it like, oh, these quirky startups, they're just doing stuff that doesn't apply to us. And and eventually it starts becoming more of the vocabulary and the, the shared language. And I think, you know, if I go, well, pre-pandemic anyway, when I would go to conferences like Mind the Product, all I hear are product managers at big companies talking about, hey, how do we validate this? And what's our minimum viable product? And what kind of, how do we test our way through this? And it's all the language that we were using early on in, in the lean startup movement. It, it feels like it's permeated. It's finally kind of reached this, well, we've been about 10 years in, so you know, it, it does take time. But I feel like it's permeated almost all product management, product development, product design language. And, and so it's really refreshing, uh, I think, and really promising to hear people speak that way. So I think um, it tends to happen this way. You know, you, you see startups doing stuff and you're like, ah, whatever, those are just startups. But then startups eventually, if they grow and they're successful, become bigger companies. And they're like, whoa, we have to compete with like that big company over there now. And they're using this other kind of methodology. And wait, are we behind the curve? And, and so uh, I do think... It's taken some time. And I certainly hear business model canvas, design thinking, lean startup, like all, all that stuff. Um, I do think people are understanding how to piece it together and realizing it's not just a, a fringe thing anymore, right? It's like, we got to do this if we're just even going to compete, which, which, is, which is great that they're coming around. Absolutely. It is uh, refreshing to finally see the large corporates catching up, as you uh, say. Uh, I'd like now to move to your book and ask you a few questions about that. So Testing Business Ideas is a book you recently published along with Alex uh, Osterwalder. I wonder why did you decide to write this book and what gap you wanted to fill by publishing this book? 
Yeah, I, I tried to to write a couple books. They're still in Dropbox somewhere or Scrivener where they're like half finished. And and I was testing them online. You know, I had a landing page and I would send sample chapters to people and they would give me feedback. But I, I didn't find like you're not going to finish a book unless um, you really have a passion and desire to kind of fulfill a need is my opinion, especially with a business book, not nonfiction business book. And so there's really had to be a job to be done behind that reason to write the book. <laughs> and otherwise, you're just never going to finish it. Or it ends up being this really thick business card. <laughs> and that's there are many, many more cost effective ways if you want business cards than writing a book. And so um, when Alex approached me initially, um, he's like, hey, we should write a book together. And, and I was like, uh, well, you know, because I, I had met him in 2010 or 11, initially, I think. And um, we had been really collaborating since around 2015. And, and I was like, well, why, why do you think we should write a book together? Or, or first it was like, you should write a book. And then he, he, he got roped into the process, of course. But <laughs> basically, we kept seeing this, this trend. You know, we would go and coach teams. And that's pretty much all I can do is work on real business opportunities with, with companies. And they would know how to do surveys and landing pages, maybe, and an interview. And then they would just kind of build the whole thing. And we just wanted to give people more options and say, look, th there are other ways that you can um, de-risk this idea without just building the whole thing, which is quite often the most expensive way to find out if you're, if you're right or wrong. And um, there were plenty of lists of stuff online. But what we realized is like the lists of stuff, no matter how many times we would like, I feel like a personal RSS feed for people sometimes. I'm like, well, you read this and this and this and this. And we were like, this is all great, but I don't know what to choose. Like, this is a list of stuff. And so the internet certainly didn't lack a list of stuff. And there had been some other really, uh, really amazing books that I love. Like, I love Eric Reese's Lean Startup. I love Steve Blank's Four Steps to Epiphany. I love Ash Morgan's Running Lean and Scaling Lean. Um, you know, and, and so there were all these different books, but there wasn't sort of like this, this guide to say, hey, I have this kind of risk. What are things I could do, right? That would be fast and I could do it really quickly with limited sort of expertise and, and find out if I'm on the right track. And so it's really a book closer to like Luke Homan's Innovation Games or maybe uh, Dave Gray's um, Game Storming, which is we try to give a recipe of things where people could say, you know what? I have a lot of desirability risk. What would I do? Or I have a lot of viability risk what would I do? Or I have a lot of feasibility risk, what would I do? And so we just thought it was a really um, easy, well, not easy to write, but an easy case to make to say, hey, you have canvases and you have a list of stuff <laughs> and it's probably all overwhelming. Like, how do you choose that like next best test or, or the next thing you could do? And so I think um, that's why it's landed really well is because we were just trying to, we had a job and job to be done in mind the whole time, which was giving people more options to choose and, and like de-risk their, their business ideas. I like that the book actually goes first into how do you do assumption mapping to help innovators focus on the risk as they want to test first, be it desirability, viability, or feasibility uh, risk. Uh, and I really like that you shared a framework uh, similar to the Lean UX 2x2 two two, uh, to help them better understand uh, those uh, risks. Can you maybe tell me more about the risks business should be testing and how to prioritize them using the framework uh, you shared in the book? 
Yeah, there's a reason it's very similar to, to Lean UX because I, I used to work with Jeff Gothoff and Josh Seiden uh, at Neo. Uh, and Neo was this little agency we had that was uh, funded by Eric Ries and um, Digital Garage. And, and we had a bunch of people. Gift Constable was also there and Andy Plantenberg and Sam McAfee. It was a really amazing group of people. Um, and in it, I was trying this two by two, right? Because we were basically doing MVPs as a service, right? So we would say, team up with us. We're going to help you test out this idea together. And my teams just kept getting stuck and they kept getting stuck with, sometimes it was the axes, like they, they weren't necessarily, um, the importance part they could probably get, but we were doing known and unknown and they were doing certain and uncertain and and they were still churning because I'd have these really powerful personalities in the room that would say, well, I just know, or I'm just certain. And I was like, this is not the kind of dynamic I want when I'm talking about risk. I don't want one person dominating the conversation or not being challenged on, is there evidence? And so finally with Alex and I, we were, we were going through this tool and we we're like, maybe we just do evidence and no evidence. Like you either have it or you don't, it's not binary, but they're, they're, you know, if you've only talked to two or three people, friends and family, that's very different than like having <laughs> non friends and family paying for something. And so we landed on that. We were whiteboarding at the library in Stanford university when he was um, traveling from Switzerland to, to, to do something. And, and he and I met up. And then um, what I'd also been doing is weaving in design thinking. So desirability, viability, feasibility, again, from IDEO, but that also goes to Stanford D School and back to Larry Keeley from Doblin Group, who has a Keeley triangle that was referenced in, in some of uh, Alan Cooper's books. And I love that framing of desirable, viable, feasible, because quite, quite honestly, like any business I'm working with, you have risk around kind of the do they question. Do they want this? Is there a need? Is there any, any kind of fit? Viability being should we do this? You know, does it make sense from a financial cost perspective to make it sustain? And then feasibility, which is, can we do this? And, and I kind of go beyond the ideal framing of just technical feasibility, but to also like regulatory or governance or policy, like there's something else that could prevent you from delivering or having it work because of uh, not just technically, but other reasons. And so when we layered that into the, the two by two, it really was this aha moment where people go, oh, wow, we have a lot of customer risk here. Like we have a lot of desirability risk. What do we do there? Or, you know what? We've we've actually done a lot of customer discovery, but we have no idea if they'll actually pay and we have viability risk. Or, hey, we, we've we've kind of worked through pricing and, and through customer, but we don't know if we could scale this or if we can deliver it at a low enough cost, you know, and we, and we have more like feasibility risk in the backstage of just executing. And they're not in isolation, but that moment of people seeing this like big cluster of orange or green or blue stickies is like the colors I used to define them. It was really like this, this like pivotal moment. And so when I kind of tried to push the ideas forward and obviously I'm editing more that, you know, creating this, my style. So definitely shout out to Jeff and Josh on the two by two. Um, but when I laid in design thinking, changed the axes, changed how I facilitate it, and then added the experiments to choose from, that was sort of like this missing piece I felt where people go, here's a kind of risk the most important things that I have no evidence to support have to be true for me to succeed. And, oh, wait, I don't just have to worry about it. There's a list of experiments I can choose that I can go run to help me address that risk. And so it was almost like this missing piece between a canvas and people saying, wow, I'm worried about all these things to what kind of experiments can I really do to address my risk? Because it's not necessarily about running experiments, it's about, it's about reducing risk. That's actually a good segue for my next question. Uh, a large part of your book focuses on experiments to help businesses reduce risk. 
maybe before we talk about some examples, could you tell us what experimentations are and what are the ingredients of a good experiment? Yeah, I, the way we frame it in the book is quite often using a test card, right? Uh, which Alex also introduced back in the value prop design book. A lot of other experiments I've seen in different formats are very similar, at least from a business lean startup point of view. So you start off with a you know a hypothesis. And so I usually get asked, what's, what's the difference between an assumption and a hypothesis? And the way I tend to frame that is, is they're very similar, except a hypothesis is basically like a working assumption. So it, it's testable, it's precise, it's discrete. When I have people write down their assumptions and their beliefs, they're not always really well worded. And so we do spend some time refining them. Like, you know, if they say something like, I believe customers will buy it. And it's like, all right, well, let's start there. Um, <laughs> who's a customer? <laughs> like what segments? Uh, what are they like? What's the price? <laughs> what's it like? It, it 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 seems like almost like Socratic method in a way, but we're really just trying to get people to unpack these big fears they have into something more, a little more testable, precise and discrete. So having a well-formed hypothesis does help you there. I think that's confusing to some people because they're like, well, it's called assumptions mapping, but you end up with hypotheses. Basically, I, my flow is get people to write down their assumptions. They might not be super well-worded yet, but at least get them to navigate to the ones they're really worried about and then refine from there into something that's testable, precise, and discrete for a hypothesis. So that's one. And then what's the actual test? So what is it we're, we're doing? And that's usually you know pulling from the experiment library. And then what are we gonna measure? So the things that uh, we're gonna measure in the, in the experiment. And then what are, what are your criteria? Like how would you know, is this gonna pass or fail? And I think out of all the, the parts of the experiment, that is the part where people fear the most because they're like, how do I know? You know, it's like, how many customers should it be? Or how many clicks should it be? Or what should the conversion rate be? And it seems really, really overwhelming because there's not a lot of great research data to pull from all the time, especially if you're trying to create something new. And so the way I try to guide people through that is, well, think about if you had to make an investment decision or you had to convince a, a founder or an investor or maybe in a VC or a VP, if you're in a big corporation, how, how would you propose, like, what would be that line in the sand that you think would need to be met to, to move forward? Because, you know, if you say, well, we talked to 20 customers and one loved it, usually that's not going to move <laughs> forward, right? But if you have a total of five customers and one loved it, you know, and you're B2B and it's a multi-million dollar deal, that might be enough. So and that's the part of the sort of experiment, uh, the test card anyway, that I feel like people stress out about. So I'm trying like to give how, people more guidance on there. <laughs> I, I liked how you actually frame it. Can you share maybe with me a couple of examples from the 40 different experiments you have in the book uh, that could help innovators test if they have desirability, feasibility, or viability risks uh, as they launch a new product? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of these, were, I mean, it's not like I created them, right? It was just more applying a taxonomy and, and kind of helping people choose. So we, we tried to basically categorize it discovery and validation. So that's pulling a lot from Steve Blank's work of customer discovery, customer validation. So definitely shout out to Steve there. Um, we just decided to say, let's just say, talk about overall discovery, overall validation, because we're trying to hit all three themes with desirable, viable, feasible. And in doing that, um, I, I love the validation experiments. I, I know you don't start there. You usually start on the, the left side with discovery, open-ended directional hypotheses, trying to see is there anything there at all, right? Like probing. But the validation ones, you know, like concierge is always fun to do because you're manually white glove kind of delivering the value proposition to your customer and you learn so much. It, it doesn't scale, but 
you know, we think about AI, right, and and, and things like that. Quite often, you could just do it in spreadsheets, <laughs> and it's not really AI yet. You can eventually be AI maybe down the road, but you can do a lot of just manually working through things and giving people stuff. Um, travel is another great example. Like do concierge, it's like booking travel for people, and then realize maybe there's things you can automate, and maybe it could be a bot or something. But just I love people's creativity when I ask them to do it manually and to learn like what are the pitfalls. What are the things that may we may be kind of jumping over and be ready to automate, but we haven't quite figured out the underlying kind of assumptions. And then Wizard of Oz is a great pair to that because Wizard of Oz is like concierge, except it's the obvious people are involved. So I always laugh when people are, are talking about these really complicated like like startups that are they're using all this technology. And in the background, it's just people doing it manually. <laughs> you know, so there are a lot of things you can do that that can can basically still deliver value but it's not obvious that there are people behind the scenes doing it so i I just feel like those two stand out to me as they don't scale but they test all three themes desirable viable feasible you can often charge for them because it's real value you're delivering back and you learn a lot about the ins and outs of things and i keep thinking back to like early days DoorDash, right? It was the founders delivering the food and realizing what happens when condiments are left out of the bag and where do I park when it's a busy street and all that stuff. Like, I don't think DoorDash would have been as successful without them. Concierge just literally like paying for the stuff for the groceries or like from the restaurant and then delivering it and then we're getting payment for there and all that. Like it's, um, it doesn't scale, right? It would never scale, but you can learn so much to inform your automation and how you scale. I just think it's like those two stand out to me time and time again. I really like the door dash example as it tells us that experiments are designed for teams to learn early on and then put those learning into action. Given what you've just mentioned, I wonder whether there are specific experiments or tips that large companies can use to help them reduce the risk of launching a new product, but without hurting their brands. Uh, As you probably know, some large corporates fear of launching a new product if it isn't perfect. But that also means investing a lot of time and resources in a product that might not be successful. Yeah, I do a lot of work with corporations. And in doing so, what I found that helps is having either another legal entity spun up that is wholly owned subsidiary, right, of the overall corp or some compromise in between where it's like project or labs brand where you can lightly brand it corp but lead with another, right? So I think GE Appliances did a, did this great job when they spun up First Build, which is like a little micro factory they have in, in Kentucky. And they were testing out different appliances, but they didn't do it under the GE Appliances brand so much. They, they led with First Build. And, and they would do things like um, crowdfunding and stuff that maybe corporate would be like, ooh, I don't know if we could do that with our brand front and center because people are going to say, why are you crowdfunding this? You're a giant corporation. But really, the crowdfunding was just for evidence that people would actually want the thing. It would really to give up money to fund it. So it's really strong strength of evidence. And so when I'm working with corporations, there's a theme where if they're really worried about their brand... And these are usually corporations that are around 50, 75, 100 years plus. They usually are, they fall into this, well, it has to be better than perfect because of our brand. And if we put anything out there less than perfect, it damages our brand. So that's how they fall into this internal iteration cycle that's a customer-free zone. And then they launch something that's really polished, but it might actually not solve any need whatsoever. And then it fails that way. 
And so where I've tried to find a compromise, and, and I've done this with several companies, is find a, a way to lightly brand it and just say, is there a real need there? And don't really drive a bunch of people to it because let's face it, like that's a bunch of noise you don't need early on. You don't want 100,000 people checking out your landing page. You want like maybe a few hundred you know, because um, you just want to do interviews and, and other things. So I found ways to address some of these concerns. And there are, there are really good examples of Adobe doing this, GE doing this, Delta faucets have been doing this recently, 3M, Procter & Gamble. Like you, you can go and find a lot of lightly branded crowdfunding pages now and more examples of it. It's still probably not normal, like as far as like common, common, but it is possible. And then if it's lightly branded and it fails, you just say, okay, well, we kill that. And nobody cares. It was like a labs brand and it doesn't damage anything. But if it succeeds, you can either grow it under that or you can bring it under the corporate brand and rebrand the whole thing. And so Adobe does that with a lot of their apps. So it is very, very doable. I just think you need leadership to understand and willing to say, we'll leave you alone enough to go test this out. And so corporates can definitely do this. But I, I think not everyone has the appetite to do lightly branded MVPs. And I think they do need to get over that sort of hurdle because otherwise they just keep falling into this. Has to be better and perfect. Can't release it yet because people are going to write about it. And we have to drive a bunch of people to it in Big Bang. But like that looks amazing if you get it right. And quite often you get it wrong because you, you weren't testing with customers and you didn't have it out in the real world. I really like the idea of setting up a separate lightly branded entity that you use to test the new products. Uh, and if it succeeds, uh, you can always incorporate them under the main brand. Uh, or if not, you can just let it go uh, and let it die, as you say. Uh, I really like that. You just mentioned that leadership commitment is important for the success of launching a new product, but also... I know in your book, you mentioned that it is important to have specific teams with specific design or capabilities to work on new products. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's less about the specific team, but more about capabilities. So for example, when you start off really, really early, it can be a small group of people. It could be one to three people, right? But as you get into these more elaborate experiments, you want to give yourself permission to grow the team as you de-risk the opportunity. Because then eventually you can grow it to something that's, hey, this is an actual business. Maybe we can actually uh, you know, have more support from the, the company as a whole. And, and so the way I, I try to recommend is definitely err on the side of cross-functional because quite often, like if you don't include designers too early, you might get false negatives because people look at your stuff and they're like, that, that doesn't even seem real to me because it's not designed super well. And so you don't want to have that happen, right? And so you need probably design help. Or if you can't do it, have software with templates you can use that make it look like you had a professional designer. And if you don't include like legal early on, right? And you run into something that would violate some sort of compliance or regulation, you you might be in a bad spot where you can't actually go forward with something. So consulting legal really early helps too. So basically the way we try to draw it out in the book and illustrate is keep your team kind of small at the beginning and then give yourself permission to grow the team over time as you generate more evidence that there's a real opportunity there. But don't grow the team too quickly. Like don't throw 20 engineers at something and say, all right, we're going to build an MVP. Like, no, you, you can iterate your way through that and, and gradually grow that team. And, and what I really get pushback on is the focus. Like when people say, well, they should be dedicated to this all the time. I get, 
uh, pushback on that because they're like, well, we're, we run all kinds of different ideas and our people are multitasking across like five to 10 different things. And that multitasking is almost like a silent killer in your organization. And so I, I do fight for this idea of, hey, give people some time to focus on this because it's really hard to create something new and get traction and it's really messy. And if you don't have focus, it's almost going to be impossible. And so it's easier to do with a smaller team. But as you grow, right, you have to be careful of that. So, yeah, I mean, that's the way I pretty much address it is keep it small early on, but give people focus and then give yourself permission to grow the team as you generate more evidence that there's a real opportunity. So all you need is to have a cross-functional team uh, small enough to work on the jobs they have in their hand, but importantly, give them some space to focus on the product to be able to deliver. I like uh, that. Well, just conscious of time, I'd like to move to the second part of this episode, uh, which I call a quick round, where I will just ask you a few questions uh, and you give me your answer in a minute or so. Thinking about the different experiments you mentioned earlier, I was wondering if you can share with me one of the crazy or funny experiments you've seen out there. Oh, that's hard to answer because there's so many I can't talk about. Uh, one of the ones I was around that I love, though, was back at Neo when um, they did the, the New York team did the dating advice app for men that was a bot. And it went viral. They had a thousand signups on the first day. And people would, men would text the bot advice for women, like uh, for like, hey, where would I take um, this date in San Francisco at a, at a nice restaurant that's not too loud? That's uh, like really good for a first date and all that. And behind the scenes, it was just a, a small group of women answering the text and everyone thought it was a bot. And I thought that was amazing. And there was a lot of value out of it, like desirability. But where it dropped, where I kind of failed was uh, viability. Like, how do you create a business model around it? There might have been a way, but I think early signs said people weren't willing to pay for it, but they're willing to text the bot for free. So we certainly tested out the desirability part. And the feasibility wasn't that hard. It was just women, you know, like willing <laughs> to do it at first. And then you could inform a bot based on the real requests. But uh, that was really, really fun. It was like there's a, there was a case study on it, too. And it taught product hunt one day. Yeah, it's just a really fun ex experiment. But um, there are many, many. But that's one I can talk about anyway. I really like uh, hearing about such experiment uh, as it just shows uh, one can actually test the product with basic things without the need of uh, huge investments. Uh, so let me ask you another question in here. Can you share with me an aha moment that made you actually change your approach to something you've been working on or you worked on? I think it was pretty early on at the first startup I joined, you know, when I worked nights and weekends and to the to the detriment of all my personal relationships, building stuff for a customer that in the end just didn't want it. So it didn't matter like how many things I added. I thought if we just give more tools, if it just looked better, if it just the UX was better and the UI was better and all that. And uh, it didn't matter. You know, like if people don't want it, they don't want it. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is. And so when we actually uh, pivoted to B2B, I had to literally like throw away a lot of the stuff I worked on because they didn't need it in that format. And that was a big aha moment to me because I thought from, from a design background, I thought, well, you know, there's always this like hopeful optimism of if it just looks better, the UX is better, it's, it's, it'll work. And quite often it, it won't. You have to really get to the job or the need really quickly. And if you don't, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. So that was pretty early on in my career that I had to learn that the hard way. Learning and pivoting as fast as possible if needed is not an easy thing to recognize and do. Uh, something many startups uh, and even large uh, businesses uh, fail to do. 
one last question for me. What is one of your favorite innovation-related books you recently read? Ooh, recently read. There's so many. I'm just trying to think of one that's recent, recent. You know, Stefano's book, The High Impact Tools for Teams, um, again, is part of the Strategizer series. But I had the pleasure of meeting Stefano, uh, I think it was 2016 or so. And I had been using the team alignment map for innovation teams. And he did this amazing exercise at a boot camp once where he he showed us how to like uh, really align on communication. And it was this fun like exercise where he had to talk. But like, it was, I won't go into the details of the exercise, but it was really like mind blowing for me. And when uh, I saw his book, I was like, yes, like team design. I, I scratched the surface in my book, did not go deep on it. And I felt like he had this really depth of experience of what do teams look like at all levels, leadership, middle, like, you know, delivery, all that. And what are some ways to align them? And I think no matter what tools you give teams and how many experiments, if your team isn't aligned, it's really, really tough <laughs> to keep it going. So um, it's a really great book. It just came out uh, a few months ago. And so I would highly recommend picking it up. It's very visual as well. And Stefano is just an amazingly talented guy. And so I really appreciate his contribution to the whole community of here's how you work through kind of awkward or maybe uncomfortable team dynamics and alignment situations. Stefano's book is on my reading list, actually. And I will try to get him on the show uh, to discuss his book, given how important the topic of team designs and uh, alignment is for uh, innovation. Well, I think we are getting at time. Is there anything you would like to leave our listeners who are mostly entrepreneurs and corporate innovators with? Yeah, so much of your um, success is basically going to rely on mindset. Okay, so it doesn't matter how many tools we give you, how many canvases, how many templates. The mindset has to be, hey, we have a big vision, but we're willing to test small and, and test it against reality. And so once you have that mindset, you are going to find this stuff resonates and helps you make progress in, in a real way. I think without the mindset, you can use all the tools and templates, but it's going to be a check the box exercise. And then you're going to end up just building whatever you wanted to anyway. So I, I would say think big, test small really be open to the idea that you might be wrong and just be data influenced. You don't even have to be data driven, just be data influenced, just be influenced by the data. And, and I think that's so much of, of the battle is just the mindset and, and thinking differently because so much of this is uh, our biases creep in and we, <laughs> and we, uh, we end up like interpreting things the way we want and we just build whatever we wanted to. So just, just the mindset. I think that's what I would leave folks with. That is a uh, great uh, advice. Think big, test small, be open and be data influenced. I really uh, like that. Uh, with that in mind, I would like to thank you for coming uh, to the show. It was absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Just before we leave, I'd like to ask our listeners to rate and subscribe to this show so that you don't miss any episode, but also to help others discover this show and benefit from this podcast. You can listen to this show on all your favorite podcast network, whether that's Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or any other network. If you want more information, you can check out my website. That is www.lessonsofinnovation.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.